0: Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. We're your hosts, Matt Domney and Kyle Dobbs. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, well, everybody, thank you for joining us on today's episode of Compound Performance Radio. Today, we have with us uh, Grant Fowler. So, Grant, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, If you'd like to take a moment to introduce yourself to the listeners who don't know who you are, uh, I think they would greatly appreciate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, You know, I think as far as kind of my background as a coach goes, um, I'm not really known, you know, for any one thing necessarily. Uh, I guess, you know, with with training, on the training side of things, um, you know, I've had, I've done a few podcasts on training variability, and I think that's kind of been, you know, a big cornerstone of Some of the work that I do and how I approach training through that uh, lens, that kind of non-linear programming from not only a training standpoint, but also kind of um, just a lifestyle and health standpoint as well. Uh, You know, I got into training, I would say probably, or or training uh, clients and working with people probably about eight years ago. Um, I'm 25 now, so I started probably when I was like, I think 16 or 17, I was training, uh, you know, just kids out of the YMCA, just kind of doing my thing that way. And, you know, it really just started out kind of as a, almost a hobby. Um, you know, I was reading websites like T Nation and, uh, <laughs> you know, I felt like I had kind of like stumbled upon like a gold mine of like secret information back then, you know, so I kind of felt like I was, I was onto something kind of uh, unique, and then obviously, the more I, I kind of learned about training, you know, I realized um, that obviously wasn't the case. But I think throughout my whole uh, journey as just a fitness professional, you know, my entire goal has just been to kind of, uh, you know, stay one step ahead. I mean, I've I've been interested in not just training, but also the human health side of things, which I think is a part of this entire thing that kind of gets left out and ignored a little bit too much. Um, So I'm glad that, you know, that was really one of my passions before I even started training was just kind of being into health, uh, nutrition, lifestyle, you know, the the entire shebang that was kind of uh, really my first passion. And then once I started to get into training, that was sort of the lens uh, that I, I kind of looked at everything through that was kind of my starting place, and I think that's allowed me to, um, you know, get results with people that I don't think um, I, I would have been able to attain if I if I didn't have that perspective. So that's kind of been the backbone of my system. Is you know, what can we do to make people healthier, human beings first, um, and then obviously we can focus on the performance and some of the, uh, sp- the specific things that we need to do as well.
2: Boom. That was good. Yeah. That was one of our better, uh, our better bios. I,
0: man, most, most other, all the other like presenters that we've had are like quaking in their boots right now. Cause usually they're just like, hi, my name is John and I lift weights on the internet. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Masterful. No, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I will definitely say, you know, I like, just from a social media perspective, this is obviously the first time that, you know, we've had a chance to talk and, um, like your content definitely sticks out you know, as far as like a lot of the people I follow and a lot of the people that I, I see, because you do have a, a very unique lens, you know, and I always, I, I look forward, like you're one of the people who's like AMAs, I, look, I really actually look forward to, and because you do give very, um like nuanced and in-depth answers with a lot of the stuff you do, and I, the, the holistic approach, I think, is also something that really stands out, and in, in the fact that, you know, trainers kind of get like trapped in that trainer bucket where we only look through like the lens of training and nothing else. And kind of, you know, just as an industry, it seems to be something that uh, we fall into, you know, and maybe that's just a human being thing, but uh, as a, as a, as an industry, we tend to do that a lot where it's like training is the centerpiece of everything and everything revolves around that, you know, kind of like the, the pre Plato people who thought like, you know, the, everything revolved around the earth and whatnot, but um God, I'm rambling. I not even know where I was going with that. Just no, I know. I, I, know what uh, I know what you're trying yeah. to say. No, it's like, it's,
0: it's the, it's a, the holistic lens is very different than a lot of other people do. And it's one of those things that's probably a little bit more important than a lot of other people are, are looking at with their training because it's really easy for me as a coach to be like, well, why don't you just do all of the stuff that I do every day to a client? And they're like, well, I have like a job and like a family and like, I don't want to do this. That's why I'm paying you to coach me is because I don't want to do this on my own. So like, I think that's yeah. a really interesting approach that you're taking with it. What would what would you say was one of the things that made you the most interested in attacking it that way, as opposed to the way that everybody else is?
1: Yeah, um, honestly, man, I think it was, it was, I honestly have to give credit to my mom, because my mom, and again, some of this stuff was things that I realized now would probably wasn't, uh, completely rooted in science, like homeopathy and things like that. And, you know, I kind of got into, or I was exposed to stuff like that through her because she was interested in that kind of, um, you know, like alternative medicine, and things like that. So that was kind of, that gave me the lens. Obviously there were a lot of things that I didn't take from that because I don't think they're, you know, evidence or science-based. But I think as far as that lens, I do think, you know, that the lens and, and the way that, um, some of these, uh, systems kind of look at things is pretty accurate. Um, I think it gives people a really good foundation. And I also think too, on the flip side of that, there's some people that take it a little too far. Um, you know, when you start talking about holistic stuff, it's almost like, I think there can be a negative stigma kind of attached to that. Like mm-hmm. we're going to attach some crystals to your head or something. Chakra, you know? man.
2: It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. We'll, train, we'll train by chakra.
0: And we're going to walk around yeah. with the this this is actually one of the things that I got from a client who who told me he's like I'm he's like I don't know if I believe this or not but like my person told me to walk around with a piece of pyrite in my pocket. He's like so I'm going to do it but I don't know what this means.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, and then on the flip side of that, it's like when you start to learn about quantum mechanics and things like that it's like well, you know, how much of this stuff not necessarily is accurate but how much of it could potentially be useful. You know, it's not really up to me to um, decide. I mean, it's it's one of those things that I think there's been certain, um, there's been some research obviously done in uh, certain areas that are kind of fringe now, like you're starting to see like a lot of the Joe Dispenza stuff. Um, a, a lot of that is like, I think, uh, very rooted in, in good evidence and physiology as, as well. And so you're kind of starting to see this like, blend of ideas where maybe some of that weird stuff that we thought wasn't actually, uh, legitimate, maybe it, it potentially could be right. You know, it's, it's like, we don't know. Um, I'm not going to go tell a client to stick a rock in their pocket, but it's like in 30 years, who knows what we might discover about fucking rocks. You know, who, who, we don't know, right. There's so many things I think, uh, with this field and just with some of the stuff that, um, we're doing now and the stuff we're being exposed to that you know in, in 20 to 30 years I think we're going to look back and be like damn we didn't know shit you know
0: I mean that's for sure like this is a field that's very very in its in, uh, in its infancy and that was an interesting thing that you were talking about with like when you're looking at like quantum mechanics and quantum entanglement and things like that like are we going to start talking are we going to break the podcast down into like just a full-on like quantum discussion now about how like there's like spooky ag- action at a distance happening in personal training when you're like lifting we a talk, weight and somebody
2: else is. We can talk about like <laughs> vibrations and frequency. Yeah. Like, what are, are we doing it. here? Where are we, we going? Go, we I'm go excited. <laughs> <laughs> I think in every, the next like in, in 10 years, Matt's going to be at powerlifting meets and everybody's going to have their own pyrite crystal and they're just going to be like rocking it in their singlet. Yeah, it's
1: gonna be like, yeah, this is my deadlift one. This is my bench one. Yeah, exactly. I <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I got quartz for squats because there's a Q in it, so it's the same. So the the particles are similar. So the entanglement is yeah, it's perfect. It's great. Trust me, metaphysical.
2: <laughs> all this thing.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, no, I, I think that's it's interesting because that, like that stuff where when you know you. <sighs> The more you read and the more like, I mean, I mean, I'm definitely, I think Matt and I are definitely like science nerds as well. And that's stuff that, you know, we, we read about out of our own curiosity, just looking at how, how to actually apply it within like the, the training realm and the training sphere. And, and and also just looking at it from a client perspective, like, you know, what is the actual lowest hanging fruit for a lot of our people? Are there things that they can be doing outside of a gym or outside of training that might have a big impact that are just like, again, like. You know, you also post a lot about like different light therapies and things like that. Like, are there, are there things that they can be doing that's super low hanging fruit and very like kind of ease of use type, you know, just interventions or whatever you want to call them, uh, that they can be doing that are going to have actual benefits over to their overall health and training or recovery or whatever, you know? So I think there is there is a lot of stuff there, you know, and that's definitely not my area of expertise at all, but it's definitely stuff that's very interesting to me, uh, from that perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. I even think just emotions and and mindset. I think that's something that's starting to get uh, a little more attention now. I think it was kind of corny and cheesy motivational stuff. And now there's actually kind of some real research again, kind of going back to like some of that Joe Dispenza stuff into, uh, some of the underpinnings of that and how people can actually take, uh, just better control of themselves from a emotional physiological standpoint. I think that's where there's a lot of potential to be tapped because it's like we train people for an hour a day, but then the 22 hours, 23 hours, you know, however long that they're, you know, doing their own thing, they're in their house, they're, you know, in relationships with other people, there's so many things that can, uh, set them off emotionally and and kind of just throw their recovery into the shitter, so to speak. You know, I've worked with so many clients and it's like they're all doing the same program, but it's like, what's the difference between this guy that's getting great results um, you know, and this guy that's not. And and nine out of 10 times, dude, it's so easy to tell like it's just their emotional life. Um, And I I think even when we start talking about intention, like the intention that you're able to put into your training um, I think that kind of, ties back into it and so when, when when we're talking about you know you're saying how um, you thought that some of the stuff that i posted like there's kind of a unique perspective there i think a lot of it a lot of it's really the same thing that a lot of other people talk about but i think where maybe i differ a little bit is kind of in the subjective component right so you have the objective components which is sort of the tangible practical stuff that we're doing in training, um, which we obviously have to talk about because that's the means through which we're going to carry things out and actually get people results. But then there's also that kind of uh, subjective component of it, where it's like you can totally change the way somebody reacts to a program for better or worse. Um, just through shifting degrees of perception, um, through shifting intention in the way they look at the training that they're doing. Um, I think, you know, you can even put that, and this is why I'm not even a super big proponent of like individuality. I think if you're training power lifters, it's one of those things where it's like powerlifting is obviously the sport. So you're going to need to individualize it more. Um, but like I tell people, I have pretty much everybody that comes into my gym, they almost all do the same program. And then we're obviously tweaking things. I send them things they can do at home. Um, like small things if they need to work on a specific issue that I've noticed. But for the most part, like the bulk of the program is the same. And then we're sort of um, tailoring it to the individual by by shifting um, perception, right? So you have some people that need to focus more internally. So if they're doing corrective exercises, it's like, okay, well, dude, you need to learn how to actually tune into your body a little bit, right? Like you're so externally driven, uh, you're so extroverted all the time that it's like, you need to learn how to breathe a little bit, tune in. And then you have some people that need to learn to kind of tune out from their body so they can actually perform. Right. And so you can take a very generic program and kind of customize it to an, indi- in an individual simply by giving them different cues, um, or giving them different ways that they can kind of, uh, shift their attention to certain components of the exercise versus others. And so I think that's a huge area that we're kind of missing is, is that subjective personal experience uh, side of the equation.
2: See, and, and that's something that like I actually talk a lot is, is so, like I just finished my master's in, in behavioral psych and like self-determination theory and autonomics like has a huge crossover and, you know, especially within the research on that realm, it's just not a realm that trainers typically know a lot about. But there's a ton of peer-reviewed research when you start looking at self-determination theory via threat response, via anticipatory response, and then looking at the actual like autonomic uh, actions that are manifested through that, right? When you start looking at uh, like hypersympathetic tone or parasympathetic tone or whatever, and all of those things are going to affect and impact uh, not only a training session, but also like you said, how training is perceived and how people are recovering outside of training. You know, based on that. So, like, all of that makes a ton of sense to me. I think, again, the the industry kind of looks at that sometimes as like um, a little wooey, so to speak. For but there's sure. actually a lot of actual research, probably more research on that realm than there is in the actual fitness and training realm when you start looking yeah. at peer reviewed evidence. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely like that stuff's kind of right up my alley as well, and stuff that I definitely think is, um, super valuable. And like, I've even worked with like organizations where we did 90 day blood testing. We did daily Omega waves. We looked at building out better communication strategies within corporate settings and within like actual training sessions and training, the perception of training and decreasing threat response or increasing anticipatory response and looking at how those things like manifested over the
1: course of like mesocycles and macro cycles for, for training numbers as well. And it's, it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that you can't approach it from like a solely, uh, you know, an individualized training perspective. I think there is a lot of physical things that you can do to, you know, cause everything in the body is sort of bi-directional so you can influence the mind with mm-hmm. the exercise and vice versa. But I think where a lot of people kind of miss the boat is like, um, you know, let's just say we're talking about balancing tonicity, right? Like you have somebody that's super tight all the time. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have somebody that's, uh, super loose. It's like, well we can sit here and kind of argue about perfect ratios of training or isometrics and this and that in terms of, okay, well, how do we get this person more tight into an optimal state? And how do we get this person more loose? You know? And in reality, it's like, there's no perfect training ratio. There's no (laughs) uh, means through which we can accomplish that necessarily, uh, through training alone, it's really kind of more of a psychological thing too, and how people are responding to stress. Um, I was even reading recently, this is kind of a new thing that I discovered. Um, there are certain cells, uh, I think they're called myofibroblasts. I might be saying that wrong, but they're kind of in in between, um, contractile muscle and then like non-contractile tissue, I guess. So they kind of they're kind of a blend between the two but they respond to primarily to uh varying chemical states so if you're extremely emotional and, and you know when you go into work your neck is going to tense up and you're going to get really angry at your boss a lot of these cells kind of adapt slowly to some of those chemical responses and they can either tighten or loosen based on um just your emotional state right so there's like even on a muscular level there are certain things that we can't control through a contractile standpoint, through an exercise intervention necessarily. Um, especially if we're not acknowledging that emotional cognitive side of the equation, uh, there's very, even distinct pathways there that I think can only be accessed through that, uh, through that perspective and that lens. No,
2: I I would definitely think so. And I think that's where even like, even just talking about like the, the secretion of like glucocorticoids into cortisol into you know dopaminergic processes, if you look at threat response, like a lot of that has to do with the immersion of a stimulus or the immersion of an environment and prior training results or prior experiences within that stimulus or contact of that stimulus and that environment. And if you can start creating a different perception for people, you can completely alter their actual like hormone and neurotransmitter production respective to that stimulus environment, you know? And I think yeah. that's where, yeah, <laughs> if you're looking at like the the brain, if you're looking at like, uh, like cognitive or behavioral function, like in physiology, like it is definitely a, it's a two-way street. Like it is efferent and efferent in a lot of ways. And even looking at things like PRI, like my supposition of a lot of that from a respiration base is like they're like there's probably a lot of like polyvagal mechanisms that are actually happening, you know, within those, those respiration based drills to look at increasing parasympathetic tone for better movement competency in people who are super hypertonic coming into an actual session uh, yeah, like, or, or post rehabilitative or whatever, someone who's under a lot of a, like a high threat response or a high uh, or a hypervigilance type response like that. I think there's a lot to that, that, um, is probably outside of like what the course is actually teaching. That's probably acting as mechanisms for the results. Oh yeah, no, most definitely, most definitely. Very cool. Uh, this is definitely different than uh, some of our other podcasts. Oh, it's right?
0: absolutely much, much more different. I think the people are talking some, about things. Yeah, people
2: are getting some fitness stuff out of this, too. Matt's got to uh, make some jokes here. I'm going
0: to have to, at some, some point, to just make somebody, <laughs> to, to break it up a little bit. That's the only reason why I'm on the podcast. Because so
1: nobody gets bored and leaves. <laughs> yes. Exactly,
0: yeah. I'm comic relief, so everybody's like, okay, cool. Well, the dumb guy's going to say something funny at some <laughs> point. We'll be good. Uh, but no, I think, that, I think that is something that's super interesting is the way that you're kind of breaking it down by, by looking at it through the the emotional response of, of what clients are doing and how they're going to be getting, uh, getting to where they want to go. So what would you say, uh, if, you have, if anybody who's listening to this would be interested in, in learning about how you kind of do that, what would you say like an, like an easy example of like a step-by-step process that you take your clients through who are on very opposite ends of the spectrum to achieve the result that you're kind of looking for?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think right now, you know, it's kind of in its infancy because it's something that I'm still trying to figure out from a practical standpoint, because there's so many, you know, we can sit here and talk about, you know, the theory about it all day, but when it actually comes to, well, what are you going to do? Right. You know, that's kind of the big thing that we all want to know. And, you know, it's really nuanced. Um, and it really depends on the individual and it, and it kind of depends on, uh, the context as well. So I think a lot of it comes down to honestly just having conversations with people. Um, because you know, it's not going to be one of those things where I think with a lot of this stuff, people think they're just going to sit somebody down and like interrogate them and be like, what are you feeling? What, what are you, what's your emotional state? Like, you know, and it just never works that way because if you approach it that way, they're not going to, you have to like build trust obviously for them to be able to kind of share those things with you. And then I think literally just kind of talking to people and kind of just getting a sense of where they're at, um, is huge. And then that kind of just affects your approach and how you talk to them. I mean, like you can ask anybody that trains with me, I'll have a group of like 10 people in the room, completely different personalities. And I'm talking to one person in one tone and then I'm turning around yelling at somebody else, you know, it's like, um, you you almost have to be kind of a chameleon, um, in how you work with people. And it's not to say that you can't have a general approach or that you have to be, uh, you have to walk on eggshells with people, you know, um, I think there is kind of a general middle ground there. Um, but you know, a lot of it's just in kind of some of the cues that I give people. Um, and some of the things that, you know, like with plyometrics, I have a lot of guys, especially, uh, that don't play sports now so a lot of them are kind of just retired maybe they played sports a long time ago um but they're not like super athletic guys like they're guys that lift weights but they're kind of wanting to maintain some athleticism and so for them you know it's really important to kind of get them out of their heads uh when they lift and so we do certain cues where like uh sometimes it may even be an exercise where they're doing like a hurdle jump, uh, and they're doing it like backwards. So they can't actually see the hurdles. They kind of just have to go on instinct and timing. Um, so they're sort of able to tune out a little bit from the cognitive and the overthinking components. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just getting somebody to shift their gaze in a specific direction. So like you'll have a lot of people that, um, you know, if they're really good at lifting weights, but they kind of struggle with the plyometrics and like the timing of certain movements, like again, say a hurdle jump or something. Um, We'll have them do certain things where they're just kind of orienting their gaze forward. Instead of like looking down, you'll see a lot of guys that are overly tight. They kind of clinch up with their hands and they're just looking down the entire time. Sometimes it even comes down to just arm swing and just getting them to actually, um, move their arms a little bit, be a little bit more fluid with their body. So it's kind of, you have the cueing side of things where you're cueing them into the right positions. And then you kind of layer in the, uh, the subconscious part of it where it's okay. Now it's time to tune out, try to maintain everything that you just did, everything that we just taught you, but do it through feel. Um, I think even to kind of just giving people a perspective shift in how they approach a lift can be useful. I think there's certain times where even using fear um, can be beneficial, right? I think we, think we always hear and people talk a lot about the fact that you should go into training being motivated, but I think there's very distinct times where sometimes approaching something with a little bit of fear um, can be useful as well because you're kind of activating pathways in your brain that change how you respond to threat you know, at just a very fundamental level. Um, And so giving people sometimes a level of threat through an exercise that they can reasonably manage uh, can be extremely rewarding because then when they get done with it, they have a new sense of confidence um, in their bodies and and the limits that they can push, not only physically, but also kind of on a psychological level as well. Isometrics, I think, are a great way to do that. You know, just in a on a practical way, um, really teaching people how to get in or get out of their bodies almost when they do some of these lifts, um, and, and almost like view themselves from a distance. It sounds kind of like philosophical and weird, um, but putting people in some of these just terrible positions where they're holding, you know, an isometric for a time for three minutes and they're going to complete fatigue and failure. Um, and they're kind of visualizing themselves outside of their body doing it. Um, so they're kind of disassociating themselves from that threat response. So they can kind of maintain some cognitive, uh, forebrain thinking processes during some of those very intense emotional situations. You know, there's so many different training methods and means that you can kind of layer some of these things into. So it it really kind of just depends on the individual. And then I would say, you know, with everybody, we kind of give all of the, all of the clients that I train, I kind of give them a little bit of everything um, because I think getting people to kind of a balanced state um, is probably the place that we need to work towards, right? So if we have people that are very uh, interceptive, they're good at feeling um, their bodies, they're good at kind of tuning in, you know, we want to get them to a place where they can, tune out of their bodies a little bit and perform and then on the opposite side of that we have people that may be very extraceptive and so we want to teach them how to get a little bit more in tune with themselves Um, and so regardless of the individual I think we need to be we need to work towards kind of a place where we can be in a balanced state and we can react to whatever is thrown our way um, regardless of what it is right
2: and we're, there's a, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah. I, I, th- I think there's a few things I kind of want to talk about a little bit. Cause we, we actually kind we approach this stuff very similar, like even like talking about like communicating with clients. Like one of the things that we do within our group mentorship. And one of the things that we do with a lot of our clients is like a, a behavioral archetype testing where we actually look at like the DISC personality assessments and look at preferred communication strategies and how people interpret their environments to try to match those things and be that chameleon you're kind of talking about uh, as we're kind of, again, framing what the training process looks like for that person, you know? I, I, so I think that's something that we've had a ton of success with as well is just, again, uh, better understanding how they view training and how they view the training environment, what their threat response to that is, how they how they address conflict internally or externally, uh, and then how even they perceive goals, right? Because we'll even look at, certain archetypes look at their goals from a very empirical or measurable way. And some people look at goals from a very experiential and feeling way. And if you're not able to communicate uh, what you're doing and why you're doing it, respective to how they actually perceive that goal orientation, you're typically going to have a hard time driving that intention from those people, you know, in our experience. Absolutely. So that's all stuff that, you know, we, we think very highly of, and we try to implement as well. And it's, it's cool to hear how you're kind of doing that, even within like a, a group setting uh, live yeah. on yeah. the floor. Cause that's, that's huge to me. Um, that the other, and the other big thing is just even looking at, um, I, I think uh, putting people in that thread environment, right. And that that's even, so I was listening to a podcast the other day, I think it might've been like physical preparation, but they were talking about isometrics and having like, uh, like, kids kids like high school athletes take a stroop test like during like a three a three minute split squat isometric or something like that right where they're 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 having to display a cognitive function under that stress and like there's i think there's a lot of cool stuff there especially with uh like field sport athletes that are reactive you know and have to be tactical and how they do things on a on a field or court like that's all super cool stuff to me i think that's awesome
1: yeah And, you know, the great thing with isometrics, I think in particular, and I don't think isometrics are the magic, you know, pill Mm -hmm. that a lot of people have made them out to be, because there's some stuff, there's some people out there that, uh, who've taken this stuff, I think a little too far with isometrics.
2: People Uh, will always
1: (laughs) find the extremes that that's, that's what we do (laughs) for sure. But I, yeah, I definitely think they're a good medium because they're kind of, you know, it's very easy to take an exercise and kind of strip it down to bare bones, you know, you're literally just holding a position, um, you know, and there's so many different, you know, cues and things that you can get people to focus on, um, while going to complete fatigue, right. It's very easy to push yourself to that point where, um, you don't have anything left. Right. And then that's when it, it really becomes, um, a challenge to maintain some of those cognitive functions and you can do it safely. You know, it's not like an isometric holding an iso split squat is inherently uh really dangerous as opposed to like, Oh, I'm going to do a back squat and try to track a pin with my eyes or some shit, you know, <laughs> We know yeah, what you're it, talking about.
0: <laughs> but at the, at the same point, it is one of those things that does give you that, that same level of threat response because you're still accumulating a ton of fatigue and mm-hmm. a ton of metabolic processes that make you feel like there's some sort of an actual issue that's developing there. Yeah. So you still yeah. get yourself to the point where you're still going to be pushing that to like relative fatigue and close to task failure while you're then also doing some sort of cognitive testing as well, which like you said, it has a huge, there, there's, there's definitely going to be something there. Yeah.
1: yeah yeah absolutely, and then even just kind of layering some of the breathing on top of it, mm-hmm. um, I don't think people realize that sometimes very deep breathing can actually be very sympathetic right um, and sometimes that that can be useful, especially if you really want to drive that threat response um, you know and then at the same time, I think just even being aware of your breath, I don't think you always need to be completely in control of your breath because if you're doing you know a hundred meter sprint you're not mm-hmm. going to be breathing through your nose, obviously, (laughs) but, uh, to, to be, uh, aware of it and to not let it get too far outside of an idealized range for whatever, you know, activity you're doing. I think isometrics can be a really useful tool for, uh, learning how to do that under a lot of fatigue for sure. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. And that, that's something
2: that, yeah, the it, like it's definitely like been become like a buzzword or, or a buzz trend in, in the industry over the last few years. And there, we we use them for for certain things, and then we you know we obviously don't use them for others. But but I do think from that perspective, it is interesting just to see how far people will go, and, and really like kind of a high threat but actually like low threshold environment, right? Where it's like there's no real harm that you're ever going to cause yourself in a body weight split squat. Like you, your, your your knee might drop three inches to the ground when you hit like maximal fatigue there. Right. You might
0: get a little scuff on your back knee from hitting the ground. (laughs) Yeah. You know, (laughs) but it's like, no, no
2: one's going to actually hurt themselves. So there is a huge psychological component that, you know, you find out really quickly with clients. Like, uh, like how. Are you willing to go to that dark place? It's kind of how we describe it to people. Like, like how far are you willing to go with this? You know? And. And I think uh, like we also use like other kind of self-limiting, you know, um, interventions for this and training. Like one of our things that's programmed into almost all of our, our like group type programs is there's a weekly like um, five minute assault bike test. And what we found is like one, it's a way to like continuously like just again, kind of test capacity week over week over week. But there's a huge also like dopaminergic effect where people like once they see that number and they keep like kind of breaking that number from a distance perspective or a calories perspective, whatever they're tracking, like you'll see limitations just get smashed yeah. over the course of like six to eight weeks. Like you'll, you'll see people yeah. take like huge amounts of, of like, cause we'll also do like maybe a two mile test sometimes as well, where, you know, it's the same thing, just working backwards with time. But people will take, will just make huge increases over time where we know just from a physiological perspective, it's not like an actual tissue or physical change. It's pretty much all psychological where yeah. they're, they're just able to embrace discomfort and embrace that threat. And kind of like you said, once, the, once you overcome that a few times and you get a positive connotation to that threat response then now, now they're cruising. Like they look forward to it.
0: Right. And you basically and, yeah. changed the, you've changed the interpretation of it. And now when those people come and they do not do quite as well from having X, Y, and Z go wrong previously in the week, they'll like shoot me a DM on Instagram. Be like I didn't break my five mile, like my five minute time this week. And I'm like, number one, I don't even know who you are, but number two, <laughs> like that's okay. Like you'll be better next time. It'll be totally fine.
2: Yeah. It, it'll give them something to work for. You but it, be, I
0: mean? it, takes that, it takes that initial threat response and turns it into like a very positive experience mm-hmm. where they're then able to turn that into a supportive thing that they're looking at and going, okay, cool. I need to beat this. I need to beat this. I need to beat this to try and continuously push themselves. And then when they do reach that point of physiological maxing, so like they're just completely capped out in what they can, they look for other avenues and routes and start trying to game the system to figure out different ways that they can complete the task in a better fashion or more efficiently or faster. Yeah. And it's really, really cool to see because it starts getting people to like critically think about what they're actually doing in their own training and gets them to really enjoy the process very quickly. And it's, yeah. so
2: it's like at that point, it's like, Hey, can you, can you maintain your, your same RPM pace for three miles now instead of two, right? Yeah. Like the, the building on it's just so easy at that point. And you'll just see people. Yeah. Over a couple of months, just like, they'll be doing like four miles at the old two mile wattage like they'll just be crushing it is
0: this why uncle rico thought he could throw a football over those mountains over there it
1: might be (laughs) you know and i think too just you know with a lot of this uh stuff on on uh being able to sit with discomfort you know part of it is like even on the micro level when you see somebody do a squat or even an isometric people that don't have that mindset will inevitably try to compensate and shift out of the discomfort right? Instead of sitting in it. So it's like, okay, well, you know, if if it feels really bad here, I'm going to, I'm going to try to cheat it as much as I can. Right. And then once they get into that mindset where they almost kind of enjoy it a little bit and they understand the benefit they're going to get out of it, they put themselves into the worst possible (laughs) position so they can milk everything out of that thing, you know, like, and I think that's such a, a different perspective too, because it's like, sometimes even if you're just looking at things from a metric standpoint, sometimes that doesn't tell the whole picture because you may have compensated the hell out of that exercise, uh, to get that number. And I'm not talking about compensations in the sense of, oh, you're going to get injured, but I'm talking about compensating from, uh, I'm actually trying to shift out of the discomfort instead of, you know, sitting with it, um, and, and actually learning how to manage it. Right. And I think, there's benefits to learning how to compensate in sport because the goal is to win, right? You got to win. It's not about training. It's about winning the game within the game, but then sports is like you actually just have to win the game, right? So it doesn't matter. Uh, you don't need to try to sit there with fatigue. That's kind of just a tool to learn how to push to that level. Right. And then everything else after that becomes easy. I think it's kind of the same thing with, you know, isometrics. You you actually can use isometrics. I think to also learn how to kind of tune out and relax a little bit more into a position, right? So if you do like a single leg stand and you're, and you're just trying to, um, I guess, learn how to derive your stability kind of reflexively instead of sitting there and squeezing the hell out of your glutes, um, it can be kind of beneficial to learn how to relax and take the easy route. So there's two, you know, very different sides there where, you know, if it's a skill I want to add complexity to it and I don't want it to be fatiguing. If it's training, I want to do everything that I can to make it worse. Right. And then I think because to some extent training can be a skill, there's also elements of the opposite that you can kind of throw in there too, depending on, on what your goal is. And that kind of ties back into the whole um, individual and the objective uh, side of things in terms of, uh, extraceptive and whatnot yeah and anyone
2: who's ever done a long a long duration like split squat isometric knows exactly what you're talking about as oh, yeah. far as like shifting out of it like you shift into like the back leg a little bit like you find yourself kind of moving around as you get super on side to side yeah yeah that is after a while like you turn into like just a straight masochist and like lean into it and you're just yeah. like oh, yeah yeah it hurts so good this is great yeah you know? uh, that, no, I, I think all that stuff's fantastic. And like you said, it's like the, the idea of training is to make the actual task, the, the perception of the actual task easier, right? Yeah. Like it, it's, it's like a super compensation of environment or stimulus, you know, more often than not. And I think that's that's where a lot of people kind of um, probably don't push some of those outputs, especially on some of the non-measurable or the more subjective outputs, kind of what we're talking about here. They just don't push them enough Uh, because when you look at like professional athletes, like you watch an NBA basketball game, like these guys are all freaks, like they're all physical freaks, you know, and the, the guys who typically are the most successful within the sport also have the psychological aspect down. And that's where you see a lot of the differentiation sometimes is they perform better under fatigue when it's the fourth quarter and everybody's tired who's still making good decisions, Like who's more control over movement, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people do overlook that aspect of things and just look at, oh, well, we took your vertical from like a 37 to a 38.5. Like that doesn't make you a better basketball player. Like there's, you know, that's, there's a seal, there's a ceiling on that, you know? And, uh, but I do think it's like, you watch Steph Curry in the fourth quarter, as opposed to, you know, any other, you know, name, name, another like shooting guard, and uh, you see the difference on just how he perceives and manages the game; it's unreal. And that's you, the yeah. beauty
0: of it. You also start to see the same thing with like mixed martial arts fighters and people like that too. There was a the, a, a, ba- a while ago, um, I think. The, uh, I I don't know if he's still coaching and training people anymore. But Martin Rooney, when he was coaching people through uh, mixed martial arts fights and through camps, what he would always have people do is at the end of every single round, as soon as the bell was rung, they would have them raise their hand up like they won every single time, no matter what round it was, every time. Like he, they were never allowed to put their hands down. They were never allowed to lean over and be tired. They would always have to put their hands up every single time. And that just instilled so much more confidence in these people that towards the end, if their opponent was starting to double over because they're getting tired in like round three or four or five, if you're looking at championship fights, like the other person now just has a psychological advantage over you because they're just walking around confident, hand up in the air, ready to go. And that's something like it. A lot. of the, the when we when I was competing when I was when I was uh, doing Brazilian jiu jitsu and, and kickboxing, the the saying was always train hard to compete easy, and I think that's a really really interesting perspective that you're taking with the people that you're training now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you know even uh, with some of the MMA stuff that you talked about that you mentioned, I think Anderson Silva is a really good example of somebody that could um, remain you know, extremely relaxed during his fights and have a lot of confidence. And I think, you know, a lot of this kind of, it's a balance between knowing when to push and knowing when to kind of relax and almost have fun with it. Uh, And that's, you know, I think ultimately that's what defines motion economy um, and being able to move well and conserve energy is not just because the best athletes aren't always the ones that know how to push the hardest. Sometimes you find those are the worst because they burn too much energy. Yep, that's how uh, fast. Yeah, so it's it's this very interesting blend between learning how to do both. And that goes right back to kind of what I talked about with getting people just into a more balanced state. You know, that's what all of this seems to always come back to is attaining some degree of symmetry there um, between these extremes that a lot of people want to narrow down on you know you always got the guys that are the muscular tension contract into position guys you got the relaxation and it's all about being relaxed and you know flowing and whatnot and it's like it's really both there's there's elements of both um, in really everything that we do just you know even when we're uh, going about our daily activities and things um, you know we obviously have to manage different degrees of force. Obviously, if we went to go pick up a glass of water with the force that we use to do a deadlift or a bench press, you know, you should spill the water everywhere. So there's this, uh, just even down on a micro level, we have to have so much, uh, we we have to have the ability to shift between all of these um, different skills and attributes on a moment to moment basis. Uh, And I think that's just so intrinsically tied into I guess really just allowing people to attain a better, an optimal state of performance is learning just how to get people into that balanced state and then teaching them how to react uh, to whatever they need to react to on a moment to moment basis instead of just driving everything through this one paradigm.
0: I'm really glad you brought it back to balance because this is a perfect transition into the one listener question that I have to ask you um your most famous client wants to know why you hate aesthetics work so much and also as a side question why you don't want him to win because you don't want him to do any aesthetics training
1: okay so aesthetics i trained for i'd say probably four years i did nothing but aesthetics and got absolutely nowhere with it i immediately shifted i'd say probably after my four years of just failed aesthetic training, because that's, I'd say that's probably why I got into training initially was is pure aesthetics, and then I kind of <laughs> got into the athletic performance and the uh, the bodybuilding side of, I mean the uh, the powerlifting and the performance side of things, and my physique improved phenomenally well. So, Talon, you need to get stronger, you need to get more athletic, and the physique will come with it. I, I see you doing arms on Saturday. Saturday's a rest day. I see you fucking out fucking 100 reps bar. You should chill out with that.
0: Betrayed by social media. But the, the second question, though, is like, why don't you want him to win, man? Like, he just needs to know. Why don't you want him to win?
1: I just want him to have a terrible physique. We're just going, here jump games. We just want to get that bird up. That's the only thing we're after. That's all we care about. That's the only thing we care about.
0: Well that, that brings us to the end of our listener required question. Kyle, do you think it's time for us to ask the one scripted question? This will be a fun one.
2: Oh, I think so. Yes.
0: Okay. So so, we, so So Grant, we have one scripted question that we ask all of our guests. and this one scripted question is what do you see in social media fitness or just in the fitness field in general that like absolutely grinds your gears and just like really pisses you off?
1: You know, honestly, man, I think if you had asked me that two years ago, it would have been, uh, you know, the, the Joel Seedman type stuff, which obviously still irks me. But now I honestly think what it is, is it's people that are really intelligent, that like I said, just narrow down on one thing and cannot see anything else but that one modality, that one way of looking at things. Um, that's what really irks me now. You know, I think. Initially it was, you know, just kind of the, uh, the gym fuckery (laughs) that went on. (laughs) But now it's like, now that I'm kind of in this niche where the only thing that I really see is other fitness professionals. You know, I work with even a lot of my online clients or other coaches. Um, that's kind of my, my, uh, my little world now. So for me, the things that I think grind my gears the most is people that think they have something, uh, you know, really novel figured out when it's like, nah, dude, you're just ignoring another ginormous part of the equation here. Um, I'd say that that's probably, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing.
0: I yeah. really like that perspective I of you like don't have anything. Answer. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Like I, you're not igno- like, I, I really like that answer too. If you're not, you don't have something new, you're just ignoring other things. I think that's a really, really good answer for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that is uh that's gotta be one of the worst. And I think you're starting to see a whole lot more people. Um, I think there's definitely things that you can learn from people that do things really well. Like if you look like look at West Side or you look at uh Marinovic training and the plyometrics they do, or you know, um Evo Sport and the J isometric stuff, I think a lot of those people have gone really deep into some of those, you know, things that they use and those things that they uh I guess kind of use as their primary uh, tools and modalities. But you know, at the end of the day, I think you, you do kind of miss a lot if you're not also acknowledging the relevance of other things and kind of tying that back into uh, your specialty. You, know, you can definitely have your biases. I think that's important because that uh, kind of allows you to work with certain people. If you work with you know, baseball players, you work with a particular, particular kind of client that you see a lot that, that presents with a certain issue, um, you're definitely going to have your biases and the things that you think, um, are going to work, <clears throat> work the most effectively, <clears throat> um, you know, with that client or that population. So it's good to have biases, but you can't be too biased. Yeah.
2: Can't, can't be blinded by it, you know? And I, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, we talk about that a little bit too. And, you know, it's like, we're, I'm way older than both of you guys, but I've been around long enough to be Okay, heavily boomer. invested in a lot of like acronyms right like i've, I've right. gone through like the fms sfma the dns the frc the pri and a bunch of other shit in between and and it's like you look at it and it's like okay well i've had success with clients within all of these systems right and and it it brings me to the fact that like at the end of the day like the commonality in all of those things wasn't the interventions it wasn't you know the training population was very similar but it was really my client's belief in me as a coach yes to to be doing like the things in their best interest right you know and and that drove better intention from them and and whatever you know and it's like whether we're looking at things like smr or cars or respiration interventions or rolling around on the ground like a six-month-old yeah. At the end of the day, like there are a lot of things from like a sensory perspective and, and just from a novelty perspective, that can get people out of some of those prior patterns and establish some new ones, right. That, that might be a little, a little more helpful for them or whatever. And, and I do think, you know, it, it, we, we want to give the modality, the credit all the time, but I do think again, the, how the, how the coach is able to frame those things and their belief in the system, giving their clients confidence within the system is also a huge
1: component
2: of future client success from that perspective too.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I kind of got into some of the LDOA stuff, which I think Mm -hmm. is pretty interesting. And from the specific side of uh, things, I do think they do some very unique uh, exercises and, and things that can have some targeted benefits for certain people with specific issues. But I was really astounded by some of the simplicity of a lot of the stuff they do. You know, it's like you got weak glutes, Okay, well, you're going to do a 1,000 sideline leg raises every single day. And then you're going to build up to 2,000. And if that doesn't fucking fix your weak glutes, I don't know what is. You know, who cares about gait? Who cares about whatever? You're doing a a 1,000 (laughs) sideline leg raises, right? And the simplicity of it blew me away. But, like, the results people were getting, you know, who knows if it was from a mechanical or a physiological or an intention uh, standpoint. But because they do go pretty deep into biomechanics as well. Um, but I just, I I love that. I was like, fuck. Yeah. Do 2000 sideline leg raises and see what happens. You know, maybe that's the way you need to go. Maybe it's not. Um, but try something, you know, and let's see, let's put your body under some stress. Let's train it hard. And then let's see what happens. You know, I think that's kind of the premise behind sometimes a lot of this stuff.
2: Yeah. When it's, I always think about a lot of the, especially when we get into like the corrective aspect as well. Like it's kind of like the like any diet, right. Has that asterisk. It's like, uh, you know, best results come in combination with like exercise or or whatever. Right. It's like, you look at like the corrective exercise, you know, field and it's like almost the same asterisk, right? Like best results are going to be better or best results are going to come with increased strength training in addition to, right. And it's like, is it the corrective exercise or is it the increased strength training? Like, uh, (laughs) what, like, again, how do we separate the two of those things? And, and even just look, like, I was talking to a guy who specializes in gait not that long ago, and we were going over, like, the interventions that, that he gives his clients and the populations he works with. And he works with, like, typically, like, a sedentary gin pop population. It's, like, nowhere in his intervention, interventions was increasing neat like, walking more steps over the course of, like, a day. And it's like, man, like they probably don't walk well because they don't walk enough. Like, like these interventions are cool. Like we can work on like hip hike and internal rotation or external rotation of a femur and pronation, supination of a foot. But at the end of the day, like you're talking about someone who takes like 500 steps a day. Yeah, they don't fucking use it. So they lost it. Like maybe they should just like start walking more and see what happens. Like they'll probably feel better before I start moving better.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of these, um, ancient civilizations or just even people that, you know, walk a lot or without shoes, you know, they're taking God knows how many steps and they don't need to learn how to reeducate for nation. You know, it's like a lot of these issues stem from, uh, you know, just either a lack of movement or just becoming so disconnected from our roots, I think. And so that's kind of, but then, you know, at the very same time, I think training is necessary, obviously, because we don't do things we used to do. And so, when you, when you really look at it, everything becomes a compensation for something else. You know, that's kind of the post I made, uh, today, I think the first circadian mismatch began when people started using candles, right? 5,000 years ago. Uh, that was the first time that people were introduced to light at night, right? To, uh, dysregulate and disrupt their, uh, circadian biology to some extent. So there's always, there's always levels to this where it's like, how far do we go in either direction? Right. And, and what can we, uh, really do and and where do we need to be just kind of realistic with uh the situation that we're in yeah. uh, that that's a d that might even be
2: a whole nother podcast is we, oh, we yeah. can go into like epigenetics and like just have, uh, how we evolved at that point uh very cool stuff though i, I think that's again probably a depth most coaches don't want to go which is unfortunate yeah. you know it, it's like it's very easy to just be like a reps and sets person and kind of give exercise selections but at the same time, it's like, like what you said, I think circling all the way back to your introduction, it's like human first, right? Like yeah. client second. I think that's, that's a huge component of being able to actually help people, you know, in a very yeah. real way. Absolutely. So awesome, man. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, wasn't it's... as angry as I was hoping for. No, but, I was hoping know. for a lot angrier, but yeah, we'll take yeah, it. I, this. It was know, a great we'll, answer. We'll take it. It was a good yeah. answer <laughs> regardless.
0: <laughs> Well, Grant, thank you very much for for joining us today. If you would like to be found, where can the people find you?
1: Yeah, so I'm pretty much uh, just on Instagram. I do have um, a website that you can find through my Instagram. If you click on my bio, I have all my uh, links to products and things there. Uh, but you can find me on Instagram at Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R underscore fitness underscore SPT. So that's where I post uh, most of my content, trying to get into the TikTok space, that's been a little difficult. Uh, <laughs> not the best at posting TikToks, but we're getting there. So just Instagram right now, that's, that's the main place I post all of my content and ideas. I'm, I'm trying to get Matt on TikTok.
0: Oof.
2: He's going to be our TikTok.
0: You don't want to see that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you'd be good on TikTok. I feel like you'd make, make some good fucking TikToks. That's,
2: I think so too. I think he, I think he could make it happen
1: we'll
0: see we'll see maybe one of these days maybe one of these days i'll get on tiktok
2: <laughs> awesome well thank you for coming on grant and for everybody listening like again like highly 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 recommended follow you know and, and again like you've got podcasts like i know i've listened to you on on jake turris podcast and you've been on on joel's a few times as well and, and others and i always appreciate your view on things
1: yeah absolutely i appreciate you having
2: me guys yeah thanks a lot man I'll talk to you soon
0: Thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and drop us a review. We'll see you next time.